would please remain standing and turn to Lamentations. It'll be the perhaps the final sermon in Lamentations. Uh, going to Lamentations three, I was considering having you all stand for a very long time as I read all of Lamentations, but I decided to be merciful, and we will just be doing select verses in Lamentations. So Lamentations three, starting in verse nineteen and then going up until verse 42, and then we'll switch over to Lamentations 5, and we'll do verses 1 through 2, and then the last verses of uh, chapter 5, verses 16 through 22. So Lamentations 3, starting in verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There yet may be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken it, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. Now please turn to Lamentations 5, verses 1 through 2. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. Now jumping to verse 16. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, Jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. The kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of righteousness and of blessedness, is perhaps the most consistently discernible theme in the entire Bible. Jesus places it at the center of his earthly ministry, only second to the glory of God, which is the great aim of the kingdom. Besides, Lamentations is a kingdom book in a way that helps us to understand all of the Old Testament. 
and even Jesus' teaching better. Lamentations is often uh, seen as the destruction of the temple, but it's far more. It's after the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, the priesthood, and their entire way of life, as we've seen going through Lamentations. There really was a great amount to lament for in Lamentations, and the center of the lament, of the kingdom lament, was uh, that the kingdom of Judah, the kingdom's visible form, had vanished from the face of the earth. God had judged their sin, and their sorrow for their sin and for their misery was great, and we see it in Lamentations. And it had a lasting effect on Israel, as we'll see. But notice that I've not said that the kingdom was destroyed. Lamentations does not lament the destruction of a kingdom. It laments the destitution of that kingdom. That is, Israel laments that almost all of their blessings in God have been turned to cursings because of their sin. They're not completely destroyed, but they are utterly destitute. That They are in a worse position, in fact, in their whole history. This is the worst position of the kingdom. They must rely completely and utterly upon the mercy of God. The kingdom actually had only been destroyed once in the history of the Bible. And here we go into the first section. I think it is important to have an overview of the history of the kingdom of blessedness and righteousness up to the point in Lamentations. So let us continue here. The kingdom actually had only been destroyed once in the history of the Old Testament. And that was in Genesis. Adam was created as a king over the whole world. He had authority over all earthly things and was like a lesser king to God. Made in his image, God created this kingdom with a covenant as he creates all kingdoms that he rules. That is a promise that if they disobey, there would be death and obedience would lead to life. It was a kingdom to be righteous, a kingdom of righteousness. And if they were righteous, it was going to be a kingdom of blessing, as we've seen. It was this kingdom alone in Israelite history that was utterly destroyed by God because of Adam's sin. But Genesis 3.15 promises a new king, as we've seen many times. Genesis 3.15 is God's promise that there's a new king of God's making, of God's choosing, that would be a savior. Consistently, kings in Israel have this salvific function as well, post-fall, of course, a salvific goal and function. For example, the judges, the rulers of Israel, had to first save Israel. That was their first duty as ruler. And Saul saved Israel from their oppressors, and David even more so saved from their oppressors, the enemies, the Philistines especially. A great part of being a king in the Old Testament was to be a savior, was to save your people. Let us review scripture and how the, the kingdom is promised, established, developed, and then destitute in Lamentations. For the rest of Genesis, Israel had no king. Promised in Genesis 3.15, they had no king. Instead, we see the effects of sin in man and how horrible his attempts at creating his own kingdom are apart from God. God throws down the anti-God kingdoms, Babel, 
and Sodom and Gomorrah, and principally, he destroys the entire world. Mankind had failed again, and no king of their own making could be their savior. So that God, after proving in history the utter dependence of man upon God to be king for righteousness and salvation, to set up his own kingdom, and for the establishment of that kingdom and selection of the king, God takes the reins in Genesis. He takes the reins by starting his visible kingdom with Abraham, promising him to make him into a great nation, and through that nation of blessing, to bless the entire world. This former pagan, Abraham, is given incredible kingdom promises, which is where we start in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. These promises pick up where Genesis 3, 15 left off and promises a kingdom for the Genesis 3.15 king. From this point on, God establishes his kingdom. He starts by promising in Abraham. And Genesis is, for this reason, truly called the kingdom prologue. The kingdom prologue. After this kingdom prologue of Genesis, we see God as the great king of Israel. God establishes his kingdom kingdom that he promised in Abraham. That is, he establishes it as a visible kingdom. God was, as king, the first deliverer of Israel in Exodus. It was God who acted as a king and saved them. And even more than that, he organized them, gave them a covenant, set up his own laws, and reigned over them as king. They received laws in Leviticus, as we've seen. They are disciplined by the king that is God himself in numbers. And in Deuteronomy and Joshua, they are restored to God's favor and take over the land, the land of promise, fulfilling God's promises given to Abraham and establishing themselves in the land of promise. So promise and establishing. So far in our story, so good. But even in Joshua, there are signs of imperfection in the people of God in the ranks of Israel, signs that their devotion to their God King, Yahweh, can be corrupted towards idolatry. For the next 400 years, God proves to be faithful, and yet Israel proves to be faithless. God next develops the kingdom, however, that he has established, saving them time and time again from their own sin and from the other nations around. And eventually getting to the high point of the kingdom of David. And why is this the high point of the kingdom of David, or high point for the kingdom and not Solomon? Because the, to be the greatest in the kingdom is to be the one closest to the Lord, their salvation, closest to the one who gives blessing, closest to the, to the true king. David had the heart of our great God. And it is not the visible political glory that, we, that the kingdom sought. The kingdom, as God's kingdom of righteousness, is greatest at their greatest faithfulness to God and their greatest hatred of sin, and this was in David. So that at Solomon, although wise, a man who, although wise, he had many difficulties in his life and he overcome those through his wisdom, he still sinned greatly. He was a man who was allowed to sin and sin entered into his life. The kingdom at Solomon starts its slow decline. So promise, establishment, develop, and now decline. 
It's a great overview of the kingdom. The kingdom starts its slow decline and decay and division, which takes about 300 or so agonizing years. Here, the characteristic sin of Israel is idolatry. And it continues to be idolatry, although the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah warn Israel of their coming doom unless they repent of this idolatry and return to their king, God. We see time and time again the words these prophets land on deaf and dumb ears because they worship deaf and dumb gods. So that God punishes them to get their attention away from what will kill them and send them to hell and their sins and their idols and corrects them by threatening the curses upon them that he says in Deuteronomy. Finally, threatening the greatest curse in those curses, which is exile. We must know first that God was incredibly merciful during this time. <laughs> in these, this time of decline, it's a wonder that they lived past one year in this decline, but they lived over 300 in this established kingdom of God. But God was merciful, and only piece by piece did he punish Israel, his kingdom, until exile was threatened. We must remember, as we've seen in Lamentations, exile is the worst, and it's the worst curse because it means exile from God himself. That is, exile from he who is the very source of blessing. It was to be a kingdom of blessing because God was to dwell with his people. Outside of God, blessings are impossible. This exile to be utterly destitute is what it means to be away from the Lord, outside of God. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of righteousness and of blessing. Exile is to be destitute of righteousness and blessing. So as we finish our grand overview of the Old Testament until Lamentations, let us get to the second section the kingdom of blessing and righteousness in Lamentations. In Lamentations, that exile had been accomplished. This is the lowest point in Israelite history. There was a period before exile in Israel. They certainly could have repented of their sin and returned to God, but that time of repentance was over. This is the lowest point because they are in utter sin, misery, and sorrow at this time. And lamentations, but they're not destroyed like Adam's kingdom was, but the glory of Israel has departed. As we see in Lamentations 5.16, the pattern of decline during the period of kings is over. Israel had received double for all their sins, as Isaiah says and prophesies in Isaiah 40. Or as God says in Lamentations 4.22, the punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. So that lamentations is while they are in exile, but the punishment is accomplished. This is the lowest it will go. All the visible forms of the kingdom, besides the people themselves, are now gone. They're vanished. And we know from later history in the prophets that these visible forms are not really coming back. Not to the same form of God's favor. When the temple was rebuilt, for example, the people wept aloud for this building because it was so much less glorious than the one before. The Ark of the Covenant as well, the sign of God's presence with his people, his throne 
is never mentioned again in scripture after the destruction of the temple. The ark is lost to this day to Israel. Israel is never going back to that established kingdom. The hour of established blessing in God's kingdom has departed. So that at the destitution of lamentations, we stand necessarily at the cusp of something new, something different in God's plan. Although it was indeed Israel's fault, their destitution was all by God's good, sovereign, immutable plan to bring them back, bring about something better than a merely visual political kingdom in a small backwater sector of the globe. Lamentations is not God giving up on either his promises to a kingdom to Abraham or his promises of a king in Genesis 3.15. No lamentations is God showing how utterly hopeless they were to be ruled by other men or just mere men, how utterly sinful they were in themselves and how utterly unable they were to live the life of the covenant in their own strength. These things we will look at more specifically. That is, how the kingdom of God must be righteous. And righteousness is from God's work. And that the kingdom of blessing is only from God and his work. This is what Lamentations should have taught them. In their established kingdom, their human kings almost never drew them to God, but drew them away from God, the righteous God of blessing. So that a development in the coming kingdom... And the development is coming in God's plan. That is, Lamentations is God pushing Israel away from hope in a mere political king into the God-man. Israel needs a new kind of king, and therefore even a new kind of kingdom. The whole of the Old Testament form of religion was just preparing for an entry of Jesus Christ, who realizes the hopes of the people of Israel. Israel had been transformed by the exile, as we see later on in the Old Testament and even in Matthew and the Gospels. They had been transformed by the exile and the sorrow of lamentations. Now they no longer are a people of idolatry. Now they are a people of hypocrisy, unfortunately. But they are still turned into a kingdom of anticipation of the true king's arrival. The future hope of the kingdom of God no longer rests in Israel. The future hope of the kingdom of God no longer rests in Israel. Righteousness and blessing, the kingdom of God, God must come from God alone and his mercy or not at all. So Lamentations teaches. As Jeremiah says in Lamentations 5, anticipating God's taking the throne in a new and better way in the future. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, that is where the temple was, Jackals prowl over it. But you, O God, reign forever. Notice, it's not but the line of David still lives. He says, but you, O God, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Israel must utterly hope in God and his covenant mercy. This is Lamentations 3, 28 through 30 as well. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. They must look to God for covenant mercy. 
The duty of God's kingdom is not to try and restore his kingdom, this kingdom, but to have sorrow for sin, repent and plead to God for mercy. God has caused the exile in Lamentations for all hope and mere men to pass away. Second, if Israel is to be saved, it must come from God's work alone. We see this in Lamentations 3, verses 31, rather 21 through 26. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. If Israel is to be saved, it must come from God's work alone. Lamentations, if it is anything, is a complete surrender to God of a helpless nation, one that hates its sin now and hates its misery brought on by sin. Israel knows its sin. She says, Lamentations 1, 18 through 22, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. I have been very rebellious. You have brought the day you announced. You have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. And if Israel is to be restored, they must have their iniquity exposed to them, as God has done in the exile, Lamentations. As Lamentations 2.14 says, the false prophets have not exposed the iniquity of Jerusalem to restore her fortunes. Jerusalem was to repent of their sins. This is Lamentations. And Lamentations contains her laments for her sin, laments for their sorrow, and repentance after God. But Israel does not trust in their repentance. What do they trust in? For the Lord will not cast off forever. For though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Repentance is required, but that is not our righteousness. They are to trust merely in the promises of God and the promised champion, the king of God's kingdom, the kingdom of righteousness, the kingdom of blessing, the kingdom of God, which he promised in Genesis 3.15. He promised there, and that he promised to Abraham, established, that he destroys, almost destroys, in limitations. So that we see the exile limitations, just like all of our difficulties in life, had a purpose. Suffering and a feeling of distance to God pushes the true Christian to let go of their own pretensions of control over their life and their pretensions of being their own God and living for themselves, their dependence upon self, their lack of hatred for sin, and their lack of repentance, and to look to God alone upon his throne as their king, as the one who can dispense righteousness and blessing alone. So as we go to our third section, Christ, the king of righteousness and of blessing. After Lamentations, in the time of Christ, idolatry, as we said before, was mostly destroyed as a result of the exile. We do not actually see idolatry, at least formally, almost at all in the prophets after Lamentations or in the Gospels. The Jews were famous for this, in fact, in the Roman Empire. They were called to worship the emperor, just like all the rest of the nations in the Roman Empire, but they were allowed not to 
alone of all the other nations. Why? Because they uprised so much that they allowed them to worship their God and to not worship the emperor. They could not worship anyone but Yahweh. This was a change in Israel from the exile. What a great work God had done in the exile. But what do we see instead? Were they pure? Were they indeed the kingdom of righteousness that was foretold? No. Jesus came into what he called, Matthew 16, 4, a wicked and adulterous generation. No longer tempted by, by idolatry as they once were, but now are hypocrites and formalists. They had taken their place. The Pharisees are the greatest example of this. They are talked about a great deal, but many of them were, as Jesus says, like whitewashed tombs. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, he says. Hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Instead of lamentations and the exile, preparing Israel for the Lord's anointed, for God's dependence upon God's mercy alone, for Israel's dependence on God's mercy alone, and for restoration and salvation from God's king alone. The Pharisees lusted after a merely political king and merely outward righteousness. They wanted to be a kingdom of earthly power and appearance. Lamentations ought to have shown that that was wrong, how uh, awful that desire is. The Pharisees wanted the same thing that the evil kings of old wanted. That is, a kingdom without the right king. A kingdom without God. They wanted their own kingdom on their own terms. They wanted their righteousness. They wanted their blessing, their political king and kingdom. In response to these Pharisees who ought to have learned from Lamentations, Jesus has this to say, the kingdom of God. He says specifically the kingdom of God, that is God's kingdom. The kingdom of Christ was what the kingdom always should have been. As Lamentation shows, first, a kingdom of God, for God, as their highest end and as the king of it. We see this in Lamentations 5 especially. And second, a kingdom of righteousness by repentance and faith, which we see in Lamentations 3 especially. Lamentation, Lamentations is God's gracious act to get Israel's eyes off of their kingdom, quote-unquote, and to look to God's kingdom, to God and his Messiah. Lamentations is Israel as the prodigal son, as we read earlier in Luke 15, desiring to eat the pods of the unclean clean pigs, loving their sin, their own blessing, and deciding what their blessing would be. Exiled away from his father and starving, having squandered the kingdom inheritance and blessings, What ought Israel to do? How ought the prodigal son to enter the kingdom of righteousness and the kingdom of blessing again? Can he make his own kingdom while he is away from his father's house? No. The point of the parable is that we cannot. There are only the kingdoms of God, the kingdom of God of blessing and of righteousness, and there are anti-kingdoms. The only true kingdom is the Lord's. 
There's no other option for the prodigal son but to return home to his father and repent or to die without inheritance, living in his exile, which he cursed himself with, thinking it would be blessing. The kingdom of righteousness, so sinful are we, can only be entered by repentance. As we are all prodigals, sinful people who have fallen away from the position that we ought to have. Lamentation shows that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray to our own way, like the prodigal. And what that deserves is utter destruction. If God gives us utter destruction instead, as he gave Israel in Lamentations, or other desolation, he's preparing us for repentance. To return to our king, the true king, as we are the remnant of Israel. We are to return to our true king. It's because the kingdom of God is a kingdom of righteousness that repentance is required. Matthew 5.20 tells us, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And Paul says in Romans 14, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and of drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God in Lamentations Day was returning as a prodigal son to its father God, recognizing that it had indeed sinned. Only the righteousness of God can give us life, and only the righteous can live in the presence of God, and his kingdom must exist in a citizenship only of the righteous, or be exiled away from God and have death for the unrighteous. As the father says in the prodigal son story, my son was dead and now lives. All apart from the Lord, all apart from his kingdom is not life, but death. The kingdom of Adam was destroyed because he was no longer righteous. The Old Testament kingdom of Israel was made destitute because they were no longer righteous. As Voss says, because the kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness, Therefore, it is impossible for anyone to be truly in it without having previously repented. Lamentations is making the nation come to themselves, just as the prodigal was. Get outside of themselves and their madness to sin and return to their father's house who will abundantly pardon. But why will he abundantly pardon? Why are we to repent? Because there's hope in the Lord's anointed. Modern Jews do not get this. There is no hope unless there is a king who will receive us into this kingdom, which they do not have. There is no king on the throne for them, but we have the God-man on the throne. Christ, from the very first, demanded repentance and faith, as we see in Mark 1, 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. What did he say? Repent and believe in the gospel. Yes, repent of your sins and believe in the gospel the gospel of free grace in Christ. See how Israel, for its whole history, was to look to their God for salvation and their king for salvation. But who Christ called, who but Christ, rather, could accomplish this? The God-man, king, saved his people by being righteous and offering himself, us, an entrance into the kingdom of God and the kingdom of righteousness and the kingdom of blessedness by an alien righteousness which his work on earth purchased. 
The kingdom of God is far more than merely a citizenship in some club. The righteousness of God is only the righteousness which he could procure. The righteousness of the the repentant sinner is to partake of an alien righteousness. The righteousness by faith. The kingdom, as will be revealed on the last day, is made of exclusively of those who have repentance and faith. As Paul says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For the righteous of for the righteousness of those righteous are those who have the righteousness of God that only the repentant have through faith. We know our sin as Israel was made to know theirs in lamentation. We repent of our sin as the faithful remnant of lamentations. And lastly, we have faith in the Messiah and his coming kingdom as we see in lamentations as well. This is the way of salvation shown throughout all of scripture Sorrow after sin, repentance of our sin, and trust in God, the King, to save us. We see faith and trust like this all over Lamentations. As we come to a close, even the worst of sinners, like Israel before exile, can be saved by this Lord Jesus Christ. Lamentations was to people who had done horrific things in their lives. Israel and Lamentations was not destroyed. They were prepared by their suffering for a true king worth following, a true righteousness worth dying for, and the only kingdom of blessing. So what is true blessedness? This is the last thing we will define. Jeremiah, the author of Lamentations, says this in Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, the Lord, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Or in these things I delight, declares the Lord. True blessedness is not only to know the Lord, but to be with the Lord. To be with the Lord and to know the Lord, to have fellowship with the Lord. And we indeed have that fellowship in a greater way than they could have ever imagined in the Old Testament. As we see in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. The temple may be gone. Indeed, it is gone, this physical temple. But we have communion with God. We have blessing with the Lord as he dwells within us. We have no need of an Ark of the Covenant any longer because he dwells within us and he gives us our righteousness. There remains yet even a greater form of blessing than this, however. John tells us this in John 1, 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Yes, this is when we shall dwell with God without veil, in true righteousness and holiness and blessedness, without the need of our repentance any longer. We now are in a kingdom of repentance, but then we will be in a kingdom of true righteousness Righteousness that will never leave us, and we will be completely righteous. 
unable to sin. As Revelation 21 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And why is it that John writes in Revelation 21, as he continues, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Why does he say this? Because this was the hope of the first Jerusalem, the one that was destroyed before Lamentations. That is, to be with God, that we might call him our God and he might call us our people, or rather, he would say to us, good and faithful servant, he alone would be our God and king and we would dwell with him. So we will dwell with Jesus bodily in this new kingdom, better than this destroyed old kingdom of Jerusalem, lamented in Lamentations, and never leave this kingdom of blessedness and never leave this king. And I might say, are you excited to be in this kingdom, to be eternally under this Lord and Savior in his righteousness? Do you call his righteousness blessing? The people in Lamentations before their sin came upon them certainly did not. They called it a burden and depressing. Do you seek blessing and comfort otherwise in other things? Then you are a prodigal. And like Israel in Lamentations, you are attempting to be the king of righteousness yourself and of blessing, to save yourself from your own difficulties. Let us not do this at all. To whom do we give our entire allegiance? Not to ourselves, but to him who is worthy. Be like Israel Lamentations as they realize not only that God alone is king, whatever you tell yourself, but also lament of your sin and repent. For Lamentations proves the end of disregarding God as king is destitution. Destitution for his people and eternal destruction for his enemies. Whether you like it or not, Christ is indeed king in his historical work. He has shown it to be that, that he will come and he will come and bring in a kingdom no longer of repentance, but of righteousness. Right now is the day of opportunity to come into the kingdom of repentance and faith or to be laid low by him. Come to the blood of Christ. Come to the blessedness, the blessing and righteousness of citizenship in him, only in him, without money and without price, and trust in God's steadfast love for Christ, David's son, who sits on the throne for all time, and the gates of hell shall never prevail against it, against the only wise king. Let us go to our great God in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you have shown your steadfast love through all of history. You have set up your promises for a king and for a kingdom. And then, Lord, you indeed established your kingdom. You developed it, and Lord, as it declined, you made it destitute that it might seek for you and seek for the true king promised from the very beginning and promised throughout the whole history of Israel. Lord, as we are indeed united to true Israel, Christ Jesus our Lord, we thank you that we are sons, that we are servants of the great king, one who is worthy to be follow after, one who is worthy and righteous and blesses us. Lord, we pray that as we are on that road to the new Jerusalem, 
the one that shall never be destroyed, the one where we will live with you in true blessedness, where we will live with you face to face. We ask, Lord, that we would love what you love, that we would hate what you hate, that we would be a kingdom of repentance and faith, that we would hate sin and love righteousness as we will in those days for all eternity. Lord, prepare us for that day. May we lament our sin, just as you have taught the people of Israel to lament their sin and to look to their great king for their righteousness. Lord, we thank you that you have not destroyed us. Lord, in this day of opportunity, you have given us what is supernaturally beyond us, that is faith, that is faith in the, the great Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the accomplishment of Christ, that he not only destroyed the works of the devil, but he set up his kingdom and established it forevermore. Lord, we thank you. We may trust in you. We pray, Lord, that you would come soon, that we might see you as you are. And Lord, may you be glorified this day. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.